I'd like to begin with a question, but I'm warning you that I'm setting you up for a little trap. And the question is this, <clears throat> excuse me, are you humble? <laughs> Tongue in cheek. Now you have to be careful how you answer this question because if you say, oh yeah, I'm humble, then you probably have just switched over from being humble to being pride, prideful and proud, saying that you're such a humble person. But if you answer in the negative, no, I'm not humble, then you're pretty much admitting that you're full of pride, that you're arrogant. Now, there is a way to answer this question comfortably, and it's to understand a very subtle difference, a subtle nuance. And the question we really should be asking ourselves is not, are you humble, tongue-in-cheek, but are you humbled, adding an E-D at the end there. Are you humbled? Because when we are truly humble, I mean, even this past week, I was humble because I was humbled. I'm raising funds for our uh, Malawi mission trip that we're leaving for this uh, Saturday, and a friend generously gave a, a large donation. And so it was something outside of me a great act of kindness, generosity, grace, something greater than me, outside of me, that humbled me. And inside I felt sincerely humble, but it was because I was humbled. And when we find ourselves feeling humble, it's most likely because someone or something or some circumstances humbled you. Whether it's some great act of kindness or generosity or there's someone better than you, or there's just a circumstance that is bringing you low, and so you are humbled. And so if we ask it this way, are you humbled? Then it's easier to answer this question without any sheepishness. Yes, I'm humbled in life right now. So we want to be humbled, not humble. I wanna to offer to you a short little prayer that I encourage you and welcome you to pray in your own words. Uh, just daily and, and rhythmically in your walk with Christ. And if you're not a believer today, this is a, a prayer that reflects the Christian walk. And I believe it's a good summary of James's uh, three verses here that we just read. And it's to pray this, Lord, keep me ever humbled. Not trying to produce a humbleness out of my own religiosity and morality and goodness, because then that easily morphs into pride. But if we're continually humbled by God and his great love towards us, his graces towards us, then we can find ourselves continually walking in a humbleness because we are perpetually being humbled. And so pray this with me, and I really believe this is a good summary of what James is wanting to teach us in this passage today. Lord, keep me humbled. So I wanna ask three more questions today. What does staying humbled look like? Why do I want to stay humbled? Because that's a good place to be, not only in this life, but really for eternal life and the life to come. And how do I stay humbled? How do I stay humbled? So first, what does staying humbled look like? I love James's writing style, just straight to the point. Like I said, the Proverbs of the New Testament so it's right to it. In verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And I believe what James is saying here, just in my own words, stay humbled first. What does it look like to stay humbled? First, stay humbled in heart. Now, where do I see this? James, when he says, let the lowly brother, he's not speaking of a socioeconomic status. 
He's not speaking of people who are financially poor or homeless. He's speaking of the Spirit. And the word here, it means lowly in spirit. Perhaps you're sad. Perhaps you're discouraged. Perhaps you feel uncertain of the future. Perhaps you feel anxious. Perhaps you feel guilty. Perhaps you feel shamed. But something in your spirit that feels low. And so he's speaking to those who feel low in life at the heart. And I want you to notice that he's speaking to the Christian brother and sister. When he says lowly brother, he's speaking of family in Christ. He's writing to the church. And so Christians, there's something normal about the Christian life where we're meant to feel this lowliness in spirit, to experience this lowliness in spirit. And we're meant to stay humbled in heart. Now, our Lord himself, Jesus, he uses the exact same word, and perhaps James is picking up a cue from his half-brother and now his Lord and Savior that he's acknowledging that his own flesh and blood is his God and creator. And Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel in the 11th chapter says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. And that phrase lowly in heart in, in the Greek is actually just one word and it's the exact same word that James is using. And so Jesus, as he describes himself, is describing himself as lowly in spirit, lowly in heart. And so Jesus himself modeling this and saying this is a part of the Christian life. Now, what does it look like to stay humble? It's not only to stay humbled in heart, but in our hearts to stay humbled joyfully. Even as we're low as Christ followers in spirit, there's meant to be a joy, a bubbling joy because of grace. And James makes it pretty clear, let the lowly brother boast, which just means glorying in. Many Torontonians were boasting and glorying in and rejoicing in the raptors a few weeks ago. That, that's what it means, just that notion of joyful, glorying and rejoicing. Let the lowly brother glory and rejoice in his exaltation. Why? Because the Christ follower, what they've experienced as they've placed their faith in Christ is that as they're low in spirit, as they're feeling down, discouraged, as they're feeling the weight of their own sin, as they're um, just feeling anxious in life circumstances, and finally at one point in their life, they cry out to God, and they look to him for salvation, first and foremost for the forgiveness of sins, but then looking to God as we recognize every week at Trinity Grace Church that God is a redeeming God, and as we let him lead and, and orchestrate our lives, and we surrender our lives and everything about it to him, that he kindly, lovingly, in his great wisdom, works everything out for the good. The Christ follower at some point has come to realize in their lowest state that God lifts them up by his grace. And this is the exaltation that James is speaking of, that every Christ follower has experienced God's grace lifting their soul up. Now, to make the point again, James now addresses the rich. First he says, to the lowly brother, Boast, rejoice, glory in God's exaltation that he lifted you up by his grace. And now he says to the rich in his humiliation that we should do the same, that we should rejoice and, and be glad. Now, again, just as James was first addressing the lowly in heart, he wasn't addressing the socioeconomic poor or the lowly. I believe here as well, he's not first concretely addressing rich financially. 
He's not addressing people who are well-to-do socioeconomically, but first those who are rich in heart. Now there's a good richness that starts with a richness in heart. When you feel an abundance in life, your, your heart is just bursting with confidence. Your heart is bursting with, with laughter. Your heart is bursting with uh, just joy and happiness and, 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 and just the sense of just everything good in life. Your heart is just bursting forth. There's just an abundance of these blessings in life. And you can be rich in life. Also, you can be rich materially, physically, but whatever kind of richness, there's a good richness, but you can cross over into unhealthy richness. And that I would define as when you and I seek to remain secure. We want to stay rich, whether in heart or materially and financially. We want to stay there and we seek to remain secure And what it becomes, it mutates into a self-righteousness. You can feel rich in goodness and kindness, but that, if you just stay there, and that's where my life comes from, that's where my my confidence comes from, that can easily mutate into self-righteousness. That you, in and of yourself, are a great person. Or, as we seek to camp out in that we cross over to the unhealthy richness, then we can seek to become self-indulging. And we just want to continue to experience these pleasures, these, this euphoria, maybe even experience it materially and physically. Or we become self-sufficient. We think that we don't need anyone's other, anyone else's help. That we've gotten to this place in life, this station in life, by pulling up our own bootstraps and by my own strength, by my own uh, just uh, willpower and so forth. And some of us still, we can become self-worshipping as we try to become our best selves and we try to beautify ourselves and we stay in this, we, we seek to cross over and just, just camp out and make sure that we never leave this place of richness, whether in heart or materially and financially, we begin really to worship ourselves. Now what Paul, or sorry, James is getting at here, what does it look like? Remember we're answering the question, what does it look like to stay humbled? He elaborates, and to stay humbled in heart, especially for those who are rich, In life, he's saying, stay humble by your transiency, that this richness doesn't last forever. Now, before we unpack what he means there, when you're in a good place of richness, there is a good richness. Even for the brother, remember, he's addressing the Christian. So the Christian who was at first lowly in spirit, then God's grace lifts them and exalts them. And then you get to a place of richness in heart. Your heart is just bursting with gladness and, and trust and, and joy and praising God and wanting to extend that grace. Your heart is full of riches. But what you realize when you've been lifted is that it was God who lifted you, and so that immediately humbles you again. But if you try to stay there, even as God's grace has brought you to that good place, and then you forget God. Even I have forgotten God. We, it's just our hearts. We, it's our tendency. And we try to stay in that place of richness. We forget God. And what James is saying, don't forget God. And so even as God lifts you, let that instantly, simultaneously humble you again. And that's why James is saying to the Christian brother and sister, for those of you who feel rich at heart, boast by remembering that it's God who brought you there and that immediately humbles you. That's the humiliation he's speaking of. 
I know in our modern day English, the word humiliation, the way most of us use it, it sounds like a very, uh, very, very um, a drastic word and, and has a lot of negative connotation. But here for James and the writers, uh, New Testament writers, it basically means being humbled, being brought low. Not, not a shaming humiliation per se. So James, he has some poetic moments of inspiration, poetic inspiration, and he often gets into metaphors. And so he says to help those who are rich in heart to boast simultaneously, instantaneously being brought low, but then it becomes this cycle as you're brought low and then God's grace brings you up again, then you feel rich, but then you're brought low. And, and it's this wonderful gospel cyclical dynamic. And he says, stay there, stay in that cycle, stay humble because you remember your transiency. Because like a flower of the grass, you and I will pass away. And if we try to hold tightly, relentlessly, greedily onto that rich estate, whether in heart or materially and financially, We'll come to a point in life where we are rudely surprised, painfully disappointed that it just disappears. And he goes on to explain, just like the little purple flowers in my backyard that spring up with the grass, because of the scorching heat, they can quickly disappear. And its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits if you cross over into the unhealthy richness and just try to stay there by your own uh, resolve. So this is another analogy or metaphor that I want to give you to try to understand what he's saying. In life, as we're pursuing life, as James also describes pursuing whatever it is that we're pursuing, we have mountain peaks we have mountaintop experiences and we have valley experiences. And so I want to try to illustrate that myself. And so if you imagine this black line is time, it's your life. And we go along in life and, and maybe at some point we, we experience a mountaintop, maybe experience some wonderful pleasure, maybe even as a little kid you or a, a toddler, you experience your first cake and, and, and this pleasure and this mountaintop experience, of course, as we grow up as adults, we have other pleasures and, and maybe we become self-indulgent, but then we realize that disappoints us and so we have a little valley. But then maybe we realize, okay, I want to work hard at school. I want to work hard at my job and, and then you experience another mountaintop. But then you become self-sufficient and something surprises you in life, a, just a, a curveball, and then you're brought low. But then you realize, okay, this life, it's, it's more than just trying to make myself. I need to be a good person. And so you become a kind person trying to do good works. But maybe you, you cross over into self-righteousness and, and thinking that you're better than others. And then you're brought low and, and so forth. And life goes on with these mountaintop experiences and these valley experiences. And generally, as human beings, we try to repeat these mountaintop experiences and, and accrue as many of these mountaintop experiences as possible. And we try to avoid these low valley experiences as much as possible. But what James is saying is that in God's perspective, and especially at the end of life, when we all stand before him, all these pursuits that we thought were mountaintop experience, God is going to flip that on its head. 
And what we thought were mountaintop experiences in God's perspective in eternity will actually be the low points in our life because those are the moments that we, in our heart of hearts, we're so rich in our hearts that we thought, we don't need God. We don't, this, this is all of my doing. But those moments where you felt lowest actually now become the mountaintop experiences. Where in those moments, you actually came to an honest place in your soul and you confessed Christ. You confessed your need for him, his forgiveness, his help. And that all the goodness in your life is from him in the first place. And from God's perspective, in the final analysis, what you thought were low points will actually become the high points in your story as the gospel is redeeming your life. So that leads us naturally to answering the question, why do I want to stay humbled? It's supposed to be normal for the Christ follower to stay humbled perpetually and to experience as we're low in spirit that God's grace lifts us, exalts us, but as we're exalted, we realize this is all from God in the first place, so that humbles us again and just being that wonderful gospel circle. And James, he gives us reasons, and this is where I'm going to jump to chapter 4 now, and he gives us reasons why we want to stay humbled. First, because tomorrow is uncertain. Tomorrow truly, literally tomorrow, July 1st, is uncertain. James expresses very concretely and to the point, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. In modern terms, maybe a venture capitalist or you think you're going to do this or that or set up a business or pursue this uh, just experience in life and so forth. And James, like cold water, just a bucket of cold ice water over our heads, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. More and more in my life, even as I get older, you know, I, I, I from good places in the heart and bad places, I, I'm trying to, in, in some sense, control, to minimize risk, to minimize danger, and especially as I'm trying to raise children and so forth. But the older I get, the more I get surprised by whether it's a, 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 a little things like just a, a fender bender and accidents that happen, and things that you never could have think would happen, and then all of a sudden it just happens. And so this is true what James is saying. You really do not know what tomorrow will bring. And really, in the perspective of eternity, what is your life? What is your life? Even if we can control our lives for a week, in the perspective of eternity, our lives are just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's why we want to stay humbled meaning staying right in the palm of God's hands. Because the next point that James is making is that God is sovereign. And there's no better place to be than right in the palm of God's good hands, his good control, his sovereignty. When you're there, when you root yourself in that theology, that faith, that Christ is good, and his death on the cross is the ultimate proof that God is for you and he loves you, then even if cancer comes into your life, even if you get laid off, even whatever low valley comes into your life, you can trust that in the grand scheme that God is going to flip that on its head. 
And you realize that those are the moments that in God's eyes were actually the most wonderful times in your life where God's grace was the most real to you and you needed him, you were dependent on him, you were abiding in Christ. And so James, he says, instead we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's not taking away hopes and dreams and and certainly it's a relationship and conversation with God as we discern, God, what do you want me to do with my life and what are the hopes and dreams that you are working out in my life? There's room for that. But all built on the solid foundation, we want to stay humbled right in the palm of God's hands because he's sovereign. But James also warns us, you want to stay humbled because if the opposite of humbledness is arrogance and pride, arrogance will lead to blindness. We're talking of a a spiritual blindness and a blindness towards God. And so he explains in verse 16, as it is, you boast, you glory and rejoice in your arrogance. And arrogance basically means here, think of those four selves we've talked about, self-righteousness, self-indulgence, self-sufficiency, self-worship, and self-actualization. If you're all about yourself, then you're full of yourself, and that's what pride is. Pride is just basically being full of yourself. And it's just synonymous with arrogance here. You don't have to necessarily look and sound cocky on the outside to be a prideful person. But James warns us, don't glory in yourself because all such glorying is evil. And and don't mistake that word evil to be only reserved for the likes of the Hitlers and serial killers of the world. Evil simply means apart from God, outside from God, not according to God's ways. It means to ignore God, to be rebellious towards him, to reject him. And James describes the effect. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. He's describing a person who more and more becomes just ignoring of God. And so this full of selfness, this arrogance leads to a spiritual blindness. But James gets right to the point and He also gives us another reason why we want to stay humbled because if we cross over into the area of unhealthy richness in life, he wants us to remember that material richness, it corrodes. And I'm just going to read what he says because he's pretty straightforward and there's no better way I could say it than just to read what he's written. Come now, and here he is speaking. I don't have time to prove it, but the context here now, he's speaking of people who are also materially rich. So come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James does not mince words. And even reading this in Toronto, for me, if I try to stay sensitive to just our culture sensibilities, it feels awkward to read that because he's speaking so black and white of hell. But I can't back away from reading this out loud and and, and stating that this is what God declares. This is what scripture declares. Even Jesus himself, one of the things he spoke about most and described was the two states in eternity. Either to be reconciled and in the wonderful love of God and in his family experiencing life as he always meant it to be in the new creation, or to be apart from God and facing his wrath under eternal punishment what scripture calls Gehenna, and what our English language calls hell. Now let's go back to this little line graph here, this, this line graph of our lives, and, 
and remember, this is flipped upside down now, and what we thought were the mountain peaks, this is what James is saying. When we stand before God, and in those moments where we were trying to seek to remain secure in our own self-righteousness, our own self-indulgence, and our self-sufficiency, and our self-worship, that's what James is saying. All those things that you try to secure will become evidence against you whether it's material things that you thought were your security or even things of the heart that you were resting in instead of placing your faith in Christ. And so James, like true Christianity, for what it really should be, he gets to the heart. And we want to stay humbled because material richness, it often has the effect of seducing our character. And so James explains, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. You see, James, he knows that it's a heart matter. And so even here, he's clear that he gets to the heart. This is a matter of your heart. So let's get to that heart matter. Let's, let's make this absolutely clear. See, we can be poor but happy. If we experience in our lives a lowliness, a humbledness, and even though circumstantially maybe we don't have as much as we'd like, we can experience a genuine happiness. But I've met a lot of poor people, as I, when, especially when I was a youth pastor, we do sandwich runs in downtown Toronto. I've met a lot of homeless people and poor people, financially poor people, who are proud. And just because you're poor and lowly doesn't mean that you're actually humbled. It's a matter of the heart. And where they'll just very angrily shout, I don't need your handouts. I can take care of myself and so forth. We can be rich, and here now I'm speaking, materially rich because Toronto is, is very wealthy. There are a lot of wealthy Canadians. And you can be materially rich and also rich in heart and humbled. Let's make it clear, James is not condemning the state of having a lot. He's not condemning that. What he's condemning, what he's warning us is crossing over into unhealthy richness, where we seek to remain secure in our own richness and forget God and forget his grace, that he's the one that lifted us from the lowly state. And to be humbled again as we realize that you can be rich and humbled and using what God has given you to further his kingdom, to help those in need, and so forth. But then, just to prove the point that it's a matter of the heart, we can be helping. I'm going to be going to Malawi with my team in, in a week's time, or less than a week, and I can be helping, but I can be arrogant. I can look all good and quote-unquote Christian on the surface, but in my heart, without them even knowing it, I could be thinking that I'm superior that I've traveled all this way from Canada and worked hard to raise funds and of my own expenses as well to, to be helping you. And we can even be helped. We, we could be humbled or have someone help us but still be arrogant that I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. See, my point is it's all about the heart and not only my point but James's point and really the gospel's point. God is always looking at the heart first. So, let's end with this question. How do I stay humbled? 
How do I stay humbled at heart? How do I stay in that good place and, and perpetually stay in that place as long and much as possible? And the simple answer is this. Keep company with Jesus. Keep company with Jesus. Stay abiding in him. Keep relationship with him. Now James, he says this curious phrase at the end. It's almost abrupt gear shift. And in verse 6 of chapter 5, as he ends this portion on uh, warning the rich, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, in context, he's first speaking of materially rich people who got rich through fraud and oppressing people and and robbing people of wages and, and so forth, exploiting them. And he says of these people that they've exploded that they're righteous people. But James himself would be the first to admit that there's no one righteous, that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And so when I read this, it makes me think of immediately, there's only one truly righteous person. And this person who also, in the way he conducted himself, ultimately he didn't resist. And he let himself become exploited in some sense, to be murdered literally on a cross for the sins of the world. And we know that I'm thinking of Jesus. Let let me try to just illustrate the point a bit more. Here's a picture of, I imagine I'll see some of these children. This is a picture from uh, Malawi. These are the beautiful children there and some adults there. And I'm going to be completely honest with you, and so don't judge me. But as I get older, it's been a while since I've gone on an overseas mission trip. But as I'm about to embark, I have to be completely honest that one way my heart journey has changed. When I was younger and single, it was easy to just pick up and and go and live out out of a suitcase and just give my time and energy to people that I don't know and so forth. But now that I have children and I'm enjoying my marriage and my relationship with my wife, I have to be honest, it's a lot harder to pick up and leave. And there's something in me, even anxieties like, God, I don't want to become that one statistic of the plane crashing and then my family, you know, left alone with no dad and no husband and so forth and, and are all my ducks in order and so forth. And so there's some resistance in my heart to go. I'm just completely honest. Now, don't judge me. There's an end to the story. So what, what, what is going to, and, and what is already at work in my heart to mature, to, to change, to shift from that self-focusedness to now wanting to gladly go, and, I, and I'm getting excited to go, and I can't wait to go. Let me try to illustrate it this way. This billiard ball, if this represents our sun in the solar system, the size of our earth would be a grain of sand. I'm trying to give you some perspective and scale. If we took this billiard ball and tried to represent our solar system, you would have to take four BMO fields, four soccer fields, and place the sun in the middle of those four soccer fields. This is already mind-blowing for me as I'm, I'm trying to explain it. If you took those four soccer fields and you try to represent now the Milky Way, our galaxy, there's nothing on earth that can represent that 
because it would have to expand 46,375,000 kilometers. I can't even compute that. I, I can't even wrap my head around that. And if we took the known universe, as much as our modern science can see to the edges of the universe, and we compared it to the Empire State Building, the height of it, then our galaxy would be a grain of sand. The Milky Way would be a grain of sand. And so now try to think, what would I be? You can't even wrap your head around it. How small would I be? But then to think that Jesus Christ, from the edges of the universe, wherever he was coming from, but his glory, his exaltation, his perfect family, perfect community and love with his Father and the Spirit, he was willing, gladly, to be lowered, to leave that exaltation, to come to this earth, to be willing to die for you and me. That's why I'm saying keep company with Jesus. And he's that one righteous person that was murdered. He did not resist. And now when I think of the 12,734 kilometers that I have to traverse from Toronto to get to Lujomero, how can I not? When I think of what Christ has traversed for you and me. So let me end by asking now, just more pointedly to you. Take a good look in the mirror, and how are you to stay humbled in your life today? Whether you're a Christian or not today, how are you to stay humbled? What expanse are you called to traverse, motivated by Christ's humility? And even if you're not a believer in Christ today, I encourage you, I challenge you, gently, lovingly, in a friendly manner, challenge you to be moved by Christ's humility. But I hope that it will also cross you over the line of faith. But what expanse are you called to traverse? Is there a person at work? Is there a family member? Is there a certain circumstance and situation where you feel low but you're angry at God or you're wanting to forget God or you're in a place of a mountaintop experience and, and you're tempted to cross over into that unhealthy richness and to seek to remain secure in your own self. How are you to stay humbled? And so pray with me, Lord, keep me humbled. Amen.